We are a church plant, and we are in our preview season of existence. Uh, People wondering, what does the preview season mean? Essentially, that's giving time for us as a community to figure out what it is to be a church. We've never done this before. We're learning what it looks like. We're learning who each other are. And so it's giving ourselves time uh, to have our legs grow under us, so to speak. And so it's really a perfect time to get connected. As Nathan said, um, there's so many opportunities to invest in whatever you're passionate about, whether it's teams or tables. We had a great conversation with an organization earlier this week called Hope for New York, and they're helping us identify, uh, locate, and partner with nonprofits in Brooklyn. So that's going to be coming up in the spring. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening, and so um, I just want to invite all of you uh, to, to get connected, to get involved. We have three pillars, three pillars of our church that kind of define what we're about. And I- I'm going to be honest, they're not original. We took them right out of Jesus' playbook. When I, when I read the Gospels, when I read how, how Jesus uh, conducted his ministry for three years, these seem to be three things that follow him around. And so if you're wondering, if you're new, or if you've been here a couple times, you're wondering, like, what are we about? What's our vision? These are the three pillars, the foundational stones that define who we are. We are a community of crowds and disciples, which means you don't have to be a Christian to be here. When I see Jesus uh, performing ministry, he's constantly surrounded by two groups of people, narratively called disciples, those who follow him and say, you're the Messiah, you're the Lord, I trust you. I'm dedicating my life to serving you. But he's also surrounded by those who call him, who are called the crowds, who don't know what to call him yet. They're, they're just intrigued by this guy. They're, they're compelled by his teaching. They're, they're seeing miracles and they're wondering, how did he do that? And Jesus is perfectly okay with anyone who wants to be around him. So if you have friends who aren't Christians but are open to deep conversations, invite them. This is a place for them. We are also a community of the story, which is something unique. Uh, the Christian faith is unique in the regard that it, it invites its adherents, it invites its believers into a story. We don't offer a set of propositions and say, if you wanna be a Christian, you have to do this, but not do this. Do this, but not do this. To be a Christian is to be invited into a story. It's to be invited to follow a person. And so we are a community that tells the story of Jesus over and over and over. And finally, we're a community that eats together. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah. We constantly eat together. I heard one scholar put it this way. He said, Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. Or another way of saying that is, Jesus was crucified because of how he ate. Because if you look at the, the table companions that Jesus ate with, they weren't exactly reputable folk. And so we are a community that hopefully will garner a similar reputation. We eat at everything. Our small groups are called tables. They're dinners throughout Brooklyn. Food is central to us because we think the table is the great equalizer and the great humanizer. And friends, this is a really exciting time in our life. We have so much happening between now and our official launch, which is going to be Easter, which there'll be more details coming, but it's going to be awesome. We're going to have like an Easter block party in the, uh, the little park right beside the school. We're gonna have a DJ, we're gonna get like moon bounces for the kids or for you adults who are really kids and wanna be on a moon bounce like myself, let's be real. We're gonna have face painting, maybe we'll get the Lord's ambassador to drop some lines for us, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> Ask David Santos about that. <laughs> 
But like that's between now and then we have so much happening. We're going to start a new series next week called Vision. And vision, our vision statement is five sentences long. And each week we're going to take one sentence and we're going to dissect why this is important to our DNA. And so you definitely want to be here for that. Uh, especially if you're wondering like, all right, why is, are these three pillars important to Hope Brooklyn? And I've given up believing in coincidence a long time ago, but I find it really interesting um, that the first line of our vision statement is Hope Brooklyn, as a little teaser, Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. We have a vision of a community that we think is inspired by the type of community Jesus sought to establish. And this, this weekend, we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who had a similar vision of that type of community. And next Friday, we inaugurate a president who also has a vision of a type of community. And so I find it very interesting that these three um, stars are aligning. I know most of the world doesn't care about Hope Brooklyn, but I definitely think it'll be a really formative time for our community, for, for you guys to hear, this is what the gospel idea of community is, this is what we're gonna be about. So we're starting that next week. Nathan already mentioned the table leader, info meeting. If you're at all interested, if you've been a part of a table or you're thinking like, what are they? There's no obligation, all right? If you come to this, it's not me saying, oh, okay, so you're definitely hosting a table. Not that at all. Just come, hear about, this is what tables are. This is our vision behind them. And, and, and my goal, when, when I look at Hope Brooklyn and say, hey, we are, we are doing the work God has called us to do, eventually I wanna see a table in every single neighborhood where we have someone coming from. Now we can't do that yet, we're still super young, but that's what we wanna get to. We have baptism coming up, we have four people being baptized. You definitely wanna make sure you're there for that Sunday, it's the end of February. There'll be some incredible stories and a reminder of, of why it is that we even gather at all. There's gonna be a team's brunch happening on uh, February 4th. More details to come about that. For any current team members or new team members, we're gonna gather at Alice Cha's Smooth Lounge, I think Nathan called it, which I like that. And we're gonna eat brunch and we're gonna play games and get to know each other. There might be a Super Bowl party. I'm not sure. I wanna have a Super Bowl party. Go Pack! Packer fans in the house, anyone? Just me, okay. Yeah, there we go, Anna, at a girl. Packer fan, not by blood, but by marriage. That's okay, it's okay. So there's a lot happening. So I just wanna encourage all of you, get involved, buy into the vision. Let's see what God wants to do. And we're finishing today uh, a two-part mini-series that we kicked off 2017 with called Generosity. And we wanted to start 2017 talking about generosity because it's a core value of ours. And it's a core value of ours because it's a core value of God's. If anything, if you wanna see what the shorthand of the gospel story is, you could call it generosity. The, probably the most widely known verse in the Bible is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved his world that he gave his only son. The essence of God's nature is a giver, one who gives. I mean, we see that on the very first page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is creation but a gift of yourself? For the artists in the room, you know that. Art is a gift of your soul. 
God in his very nature is one who gives. And so it's a central idea to him. Therefore, it's a central idea to be his follower is to be one who gives. And it has particular pertinence for us in the West today. I, uh, I found, I stumbled across this quote from Andrew Del Banco, who's a professor at Columbia. And uh, he, he points something out. And I found it really interesting for our purposes, especially as we talk about generosity. He says, Tocqueville's detection of a strange melancholy in the midst of abundance, and he's quoting Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French statesman who came over to the Americas in the 1800s. And that famous line right there, he described America among other things, as he said, there was this strange melancholy in the midst of abundance. Here's a country that has everything. They have more than any people has ever had, and yet they're sad. There's this strange melancholy. And so Del Banco goes, Tocqueville's detection of a strange melancholy in the midst of abundance has a special salience today. Because while we have gotten very good at deconstructing old stories. When it comes to telling new ones, we are blocked. We live in an age of unprecedented wealth, but the ache for meaning goes unrelieved. What's he saying? He's saying, in the West, in America, more than any other time, human past, we have so much. It's constantly, we're just, we're, grow, we're ballooning. We have so much. And yet as we have more and more and more, you see increasing rates of anxiety, increasing rates of depression, just general unhappiness, which I would think is perfectly correlated to what the gospel says. If the creator is generous in his DNA and he created the human machine to operate like he operates, then we are most fully human when we too are generous. In fact, uh, Anna alerted me to a study either by Harvard or Stanford, and they looked at happiness. They, they uh, interviewed tons of people, and they wanted to figure out, is there a correlation between those who are most self-actualized, most happy? And what they found was really interesting. In the top percentage group, those who were happiest, uh, they did something the same. They wrote down every day what they were thankful for. They gave thanks. They didn't hoard, they, they were generous with their, with their gratitude. There seems to be a link between generosity and happiness. And so last week we talked about possessions and finances. And, and essentially the, the case we were making is that God, throughout the history of his interaction with his people, whether it be Israel or the church, he's constantly calling his people to be dispossessed of their things, to not hold on to them, to release them. And the reason why we said is because God wants nothing from us, he wants something, something for us. He's doing it as protection, he's inviting us into something. He's inviting us in to a better story. And C.S. Lewis, that was sort of our guiding uh, quote that we, we used yes, or last Sunday. And Lewis writes, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. What Lewis is saying is that humanity, we have these mud pies, we have pennies, and it's not much, but we have them, and they're our security, they protect us. And we hold so tightly to them, and we grow increasingly unhappy when God is saying, let them go. And not just talking about money, but all of ourselves, and we'll get into that today. Let it go. We hold to this, to this idea of, no, no, the mud pies, they're terrible, but at least they're mine. When God is saying, join me into a holiday at sea. Come with me. I have infinite joy for you if you'll just release. Be a little more open-handed. Be generous. And so the invitation last week was to part with some of our resources, to take a step and to accept God's invitation, but also to partner with Hope Brooklyn, which we uh, are, like God is planting this church. He's establishing this community. And so today what we wanna talk about is generosity of time and the posture of a servant. And I wanna continue with the idea of invitation, that God is inviting, not coercing, not obligating, he's inviting those who would follow him into a life of servanthood. And and this comes from Philippians 2. This is sort of like one of the the earliest hymns that we have in, in the Christian tradition. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, have the very same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Have the very same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with him something to be grasped, something to be hoarded, but he emptied himself out, taking the nature of a servant. This is like the genetic code of God. To be like God is not to hoard anything, but to be generous with it. So much so that the triune God, the Son, did not consider perfect community, perfect love and union with his father, something to be held on to, but emptied himself and took the nature of a servant. This is hard, guys, and this is what he's calling us to. My wife will tell you um, that I try really hard to be generous, but we all have those things, right, that these are like, all right, I'll be generous up to this point, but right here, uh, it's, it's hard. For me, it's granola, okay? I know, I know. I will give you my bed. If you're in debt, I will write a check I don't have. Doesn't matter. But if you want a bowl of my granola, it's gonna be begrudging a little bit. But it goes to show this idea of if God at his core is giving away his very God-likeness, we got a long way to go. And he's he's not disappointed. He's pleased with our little stumbling steps. But this is what he's calling us into. And so Jesus, while on earth, um, there's a story where he's about to be betrayed and crucified, but he's sharing a meal with his friends. He's eating, go figure. And he gets up from the table and he takes a basin and he washes his disciples' feet. He washes every single disciple's feet, even Judas, the one who's gonna betray him later. And when he finishes, he stands up and he says, you call me Lord and teacher, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I'm just quoting these scriptures to, to illustrate as clearly as possible. For those of us who wish to follow God, for those of us who wish to step into this story of following Jesus, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He's calling us into a life of servanthood in various ways. And today, for our practical purposes of Hope Brooklyn, I'm gonna be very blunt, but I'm gonna continue this idea of invitation. I wanna invite everyone here who's not part of a Sunday morning team to sign up for one today, to commit to serving once a month the family of Hope Brooklyn. And I know that seems trivial. I know it's like, all right, you're talking about Jesus, the son, emptying himself and coming, like God emptying himself and coming as a servant, as a human. And you're just asking me to serve once a month. I know that seems trivial, but it's not. And we'll go through why that is. And like, like a little pebble that hits a still pond and ripples just go out. That's the logic of God. It always works that way. Little acts, as Mother Teresa said, you can never do anything great. You can only do little things with great love and just watch the ripple effect. And so with that invitation, it, if we step into this, we will actually be serving the common good of four groups. And we're just gonna go through that quite practically today. We will serve ourself, we will serve our family, we will serve our neighbors, and we will serve our God. Stepping into a life of service, stepping into a posture of servanthood serves all four of these groups. First, serves ourself. Now it seems a bit self-serving, duh, but I think it's important because on the front end, this is what it feels like. It feels really painful, right? Anytime we're called to part with what we have, whether, whatever it may be, in this case, our time, it feels painful, it feels like a sacrifice. And the point is, it is. Look at uh, Luke 9, 23. Jesus is teaching to a crowd. He's teaching to a lot of people who are really excited about his ministry. And he kind of halts him. He's like, hold up for a sec. Let me, let me just say something. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come die with me. For anyone who wants to call me Lord, I'm not calling you, I'm not calling you into a life of luxury. I'm calling you into a life of sacrifice. I'm saying you need to pick up your cross and come die with me. And just so you know, in the first century, the cross is not an ambivalent sign. It's not something gold or silver around our neck. It's wooden, it's big, and we're gonna die upon it. So everyone would have known exactly what he's saying. He's not inviting them to conquer the world. He's inviting them to come and die, quite literally. Now our society today, as it was then, we don't teach to pursue personal death. Like that's not natural. It feels like a sacrifice. But I love what uh, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas says. He goes, we are invited to take up the cross and that is the reward. We are invited to take up the cross and that is the reward. For that reward makes possible a life freed from the fear of death and those who use our fear of death to save us. To be saved from the salvation offered by the world surely is what it means to be made righteous. To be saved from the salvation offered by the world surely is what it means to be made righteous. What's he saying? He's a theologian. He's being provocative, all right? Here's what he's saying. He goes, everyone offers a story. 
Everywhere you go, you're being offered an account of existence, an account of life, something worth investing your life into. And so the world offers its forms of salvation. What would it be in America? Well, materialism would be one, right? That's what Del Banco was, uh, he, that's what he was noticing and observing. We are told that we become our fullest selves when we consume more. Just one more thing, one more car, one more house. Then we'll be saved. And what happens? We get unhappier and unhappier. The world offers salvation. Jesus goes, I too offer you salvation. It comes in the form of a cross. And that is the reward. See, what he's doing when he says, step into this life of servanthood, is he's saying, abandon the world's form of salvation and try mine on. And it seems really painful at first. And it probably will end in death. Many types of personal death. But you'll find incredible life at the end of it. How will you find incredible life? Because what we said in the very beginning, if God in his very nature is a generous God, then we become fully human when we also live generous lives. But a life of sacrifice as intrinsically rewarding is not what we're taught. And therefore, a life of servanthood and finding joy in that process requires that our mind and hearts be rewired. It requires that we be retrained in the true reality of the world. Paul says this in Acts 20. He goes, remember what the Lord Jesus himself said. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, some of y'all who were with us in the summer at the Brooklyn table, remember we talked about that word blessed. It's the Greek word makarion, and it's an adjective. So what's Paul saying? He's not saying, if you give, you will be blessed and receive. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, he's just stating the fact of, of reality. He's saying, those who give are actually happier. Because that word makarion, it could mean blessed or happy. So he's saying, happier are those who give than receive. It's just, it's just the nature of reality. It's the logic of God. We grow richer by giving. We grow happier by serving. That is who God is. That's the invitation for all of us. So first, when we accept this invitation to step into a life of service, to part with some of our time, it's gonna feel like a sacrifice, and it is. But you'll find Curiously and amazingly, that sacrifice turns out to be everything our hearts were looking for the entire time. Second, when we accept the invitation to serve, we're also serving our family. Peter writes in his letter to the church in Rome, he goes, the end of all things is near. And this is coming near the end of his letter. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. Now he starts by saying exactly what we just said, that this life of sacrifice and service begins with pain. He goes, be serious and discipline yourselves. Uh, the, the word for serious that he uses 
comes from the Greek Sophia, which means wisdom. So he's saying be wise, understand the nature of the world and discipline yourselves, be sober-minded. And then he goes, as good stewards of what you've received, serve one another with whatever gift you have been given. Now three things stand out to me in that sentence. First, the logic of God. Um, For those of you who were here last week, we talked about Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And there's this line where Paul says, uh, we give and God richly blesses us because of our generosity. But notice, we give, we receive blessing in abundance, not to hoard, but to give again. Peter says, like good stewards of the grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Stewardship of gifts is to be giving in return, which is why the prosperity gospel goes wrong. And it goes wrong in a couple places. But the prosperity gospel, first, it goes wrong by saying, if we give, God blesses us with material abundance. That's not true at all. But secondly, where it goes wrong is it assumes we give and God blesses us and now we have more, which is not the logic of God at all. Everything about our lives is meant to be a pouring out. But in the pouring out, we discover a life of abundance we never knew was possible. That's the logic of God. We give so as to receive, so as to give again. As good stewards of what you've received, serve one another with whatever gift you have been given. And so the last thing I would say about that, notice, serve one another with whatever gift you have been given. See, there's a, there's a lie that I think the evil one has done a good job uh, of infiltrating into the church. And it's this, when you become a Christian, all fun stops, right? When you become a Christian, you no longer have fun. Like maybe, uh, take an example, say you enjoy baking, right? You love to bake. When you become a Christian, God goes, I don't want you to bake ever again. Go into your room and pray and read. Not true at all. Not true at all. In fact, you discover what baking really is. God gave you these gifts. God gave you these passions. He didn't make a mistake. Everything that's in you as desires and what you love and what you're passionate about, it's not like God saying, ooh, that's wrong. He's saying, give it to me and I'll show you how to really use this gift. Does that make sense? Give it to me and I'll show you how to really use this gift. It's not death. It's incredible life when we say, because God is not asking us to deny ourselves, deny our passions. He's saying, I can show you how to really use them for the greatest amount possible. It's, it's the classic example of Eric Liddell, Chariots of Fire. Y'all know that story? The Scottish Olympian, he's a runner. And in this famous line, he's talking and he goes, look, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When he became a Christian, it wasn't stop running. No, God gave him that passion to run. That was unique. Use that gift to the glory of God, to the service of your neighbor. Discover what that gift truly is. Hebrews 12, I'm like, even Jesus, he didn't die just to die. He died for life. He says, for the joy set before him, meaning Jesus, he endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The life we're being called into, a life of service, a life of sacrifice, is not just to die and to self-deny forever. It's actually to discover joy at the end of the denial, a joy that we couldn't dream for ourselves or couldn't make up for ourselves. And uh, you're probably thinking, all right, this is great, this is very spiritual, but the invitation is just to join a team and commit once a month to serving at the church. That's kind of like bringing it way down. But I don't think that's the case. There's a a fantastic book called The Great Divorce. And it was a work by C.S. Lewis. And um, in it, Lewis is a British, he's not even a theologian, but he writes theology. Uh, He reimagines heaven and hell. And it's a phenomenal piece of literature. And there's this moment where um, a tour guide, essentially, it's similar to like Virgil's The Enid. There's a tour guide taking around this person who's new to heaven and hell, to the spiritual realm. And he's taking them around heaven. And uh, this, this guy, the tutor, he sees a woman and a giant, like Macy's Day parade float. She's just decked out with servants and she's like sitting on a throne and it's just, she's just, you know, promenading through this new heaven, this land. And this guy asks his, to, his, his tour guide, he goes, whoa, who is that? What has is, what is she done? Like, I must have heard about her. Was she a saint? And the, the tour guide goes, no, you probably would have never heard of her. She was a housewife in a small English village. She has served the village. How's it? Do you, should, you get the point. God is not asking us to do great things. He's asking us to do little things with great love. And then that spiritual transformation is reflected. So there is a correlation between this this spiritual, this theology, and the simple task of serving your family once a month. And the great thing is we have options. So I don't know what you're passionate about, but we have options. We have a brunch team. Maybe you like food and dancing because it's led by my wife, so I know she's gonna dance while she cooks. So we have a brunch team, we have a, a, a kids and tots team, maybe your passion is children and you love cultivating imaginations of the next generation. We have a setup and a greeting team, we have a production team that sort of manages the slides and we have a music team. And just so you know, the music team is the only one where you have to have your passions like affirmed by someone else. <laughs> All the others, we take you at your word, all right? But the invitation to serve also serves our family. Third, when we enter to this life of service, it serves our neighbor. This comes from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.34. In this book, God is sort of laying out what it means to be his people, to Israel. And he says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Now you read that and you think that's an unwise action. He's saying the refugee who's passing through your land, the exile, the one you don't know at all, treat him as your brother and your sister. Serve them as you would serve your brother and your sister. Why? What is the motivation for serving the stranger? Because you too were strangers once. You too are refugees. 
A while ago, we talked about in 1 Peter's letter when he goes, live as strangers and aliens in the land. We're not home. We are citizens of another kingdom. And therefore, recognizing our own refugee status, we treat everyone, the stranger passing through, everyone with the same level of service and respect. So on Sundays, you don't know who's coming. You don't know who's showing up. We live in Brooklyn as strangers and aliens serving Brooklyn. So that's the first motivation, but also God says, and I love this, he goes, you will treat the stranger sojourning through Israel as a native and you will love them as yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. He just sort of states like, this is who I am. That doesn't really answer the why other than like saying, hey, if you're part of my family, this is how we do things, right? And like, you ever, you know, ask your, your mom or dad growing up like, oh, why do we have to go to church on Christmas morning or, you know, whatever it is, why do we, why do, we do it this way? And your parents are like, well, this is, this is my family. If you're gonna be a part of my family, this is who we are. God is saying, people know me by the way I treat strangers. The world will look at us and know us, know the family resemblance by the way we treat the alien and the exile. It's just another way of saying refugees will always be welcome at Hope Brooklyn without any questions asked, nothing whatsoever. We got a spot at the table for him. Why? Because he is the Lord our God. That's just kind of like ends the discussion. There's a, a story of a, of a plague in Alexandria in the third century. And it was really interesting. At that point in Christian history, Christians were very persecuted in Alexandria. And this plague starts spreading and people start freaking out. And they, um, they like, at the first sign of symptoms, they throw them out in the street. They throw out brother or sister or father and mother and they flee the city. They get out. But the Christians stayed. The Christians stayed in the city and they took the people who were thrown out into the street and they brought them into their own home and they nursed them until they died. And a lot of the Christians also contracted the virus for doing that and also died. When the plague stopped, people came back into Alexandria and the Christians were no longer persecuted. And you think, that's such a foolish decision. Why would you do that? Because that's what our family does. That's the type of life we're called to. We're not afraid of death. We've already endured the cross. We're, we're carrying the cross with them. We are living into a different story. The kingdom Jesus unleashes is a kingdom of hospitality. In Luke 14, he's talking and he says, he said to the man, Jesus said to the man who had invited him to the party, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors for they'll also invite you in return and you'll be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed, Makarion, you'll be happier because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Literal, metaphorical refugees, the stranger, the alien, they're walking through our doors all the time. And they'll always be, so when we serve, we also serve them. The poor, the lame, the unloved, the unlovable, those who make it really hard for us to love them, they too are welcome at the table.
The atheists, the ill, the addicts, the rich and the lonely, doesn't matter. This community is for them. Why? Because he's the Lord our God. That's how our Father says, that's what it means to be part of the family. So we step into that. And finally, the invitation to serve serves ourself, serves our family, serves the stranger, the neighbor, and it serves God, serves our Father. Romans 12, 1, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. We end where we began. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the nature of a servant. That is what it means to be God's, in God's family. It's to be generous, it's to be a giver, a servant. Paul is saying, offer your bodies because of God's mercy, because of how much we've received, offer all of yourself. I know it's a broken self. I know it's jacked up. I know it's got a lot of work left to do. Offer it as pleasing sacrifice, a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There's a, uh, a figure in Christian history named Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence um, was a Frenchman who lived in the 1700s, pre-French Revolution. And people would travel far and wide to meet Brother Lawrence, because an interview got out. Uh, um, Brother Lawrence was a KitchenAid. He was born into poverty in France, and he was a KitchenAid in a monastery. He wasn't even the chef or the cook. He literally served the cook. He cleaned the kitchen. And he became famous because he had a joy that no one understood. He just loved doing what he did for God. And so there's a, a famous book that I encourage you to read. It's called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And there's this line of just the simplicity of his life, the life that God is calling all of us into, that he says, is op- Brother Lawrence says, is open for all of us. And it says, when he had finished, meaning when he had finished his work for the day, he examined himself, how he had discharged his duty. And if he found well, he returned thanks to God. If otherwise, he asked pardon. And without being discouraged by messing up, he set his mind right again and continued his exercise of the presence of God as if he had never deviated from it. We can't do great things. We can clean a dish to the glory of God. We can open the door to the service of our neighbor to the glory of God. And we can experience such joy and having eyes that are looking to serve, not to be served, according to Brother Lawrence. The essence of the gospel, friends, is that the king, the king has become the servant that he might make all of us into royalty and into servants. We are called to be royalty and we exercise our royalty by serving others. Does that make sense? The king has become the servant that he might make us also into prince and princesses who exercise our royalty by serving others. I worship that king. That sounds like a story I wanna be a part of. And though it might scare me at first because it means putting down the mud pies and stepping into an alternative vision of security in life, a vision that says I'm gonna pour out 
trusting that this king will always make sure that there's bread on the table. As he says, if I have served you, Jesus is talking, if I have served you to his disciples, you ought to serve one another. Brother Lawrence finishes his work by saying, God says he has infinite treasure to bestow. That's what God says. God says he has infinite treasure to bestow upon us. But blind as we are, we hinder God and we stop the current of his graces. But when he finds a soul penetrated with a lively faith, when he finds a soul who accepts the invitation, though they're scared out of their mind, say, okay, I'll try. He pours into it his graces and favors plentifully. You can tell this was written a long time ago. There they flow like a torrent, which after being forcibly stopped against its ordinary course, when it has found a passage, it spreads itself with impetuosity and abundance. What's he saying? He's saying the logic of God is to put down the mud pies and take God up on his offer of an invitation at sea. To give is to grow richer. To serve, not to be served, is to be happier. That's who God is. That's who he's calling us to be. And so the invitation today is quite practical. In just a minute, uh, we're gonna go upstairs for brunch and I think we're having a pizza party today. And I'm inviting everyone here who's not part of a team to commit, to, to sit at a table. When we get upstairs, you'll see the various tables have signs representing the different Sunday morning teams. Sit at one that interests you. Sit at one that already has your passions and talk to current representatives there and commit to serving yourself, your family, the stranger, and God once a month at Hope Brooklyn. Now, I would say, don't feel coerced. Like I said last week, if you're feeling coerced or obligated, don't do it. You have my permission. And there's tremendous grace, no questions asked. Search yourself why that's the case, but don't feel coerced. Just sit at the table and talk with people. But for the rest of us, accept the invitation. Step out. Let's, let's give God a chance for that holiday at sea. Let's pray together.